0: Matthew chapter 12. Um, We have been working our way through the gospel of Matthew. It's what we do here at Calvary. We'll take a book of the Bible, we'll start at the beginning and we just go all the way through. Today we find ourselves in Matthew 12. We began Matthew 12 last week and um, we... The first part of this chapter uh, there's a discussion, lots of discussion between Jesus and the Pharisees concerning how do you keep the Sabbath and so we talked about that. But if you notice verse 14 uh, it says, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him, is what my Bible says. Some of your Bibles say they wanted to kill him. How many of your Bibles say kill him? Good. So that's, that's what they mean. So this, this is where we find ourselves today. Now I'm going to pick it up in verse 22. And in verse 22, as the story continues, it says, then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, he couldn't speak, was brought to Jesus and he healed him. So that the mute man spoke and saw, all the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? So they begin to ask that they begin to ask that question. So the crowds, as our story begins, they know they know who this man is. They know his condition. They see that he's healed, and um, so there, there's a few things that we get from this. First of all, apparently Jesus believed that demonic possession was real and uh, you and I live in a day where there are professing Christians who do not believe that demonic possession is a real thing, and we try to explain it away as something psychological or something like that. But Jesus believed that it was was something that was real, so he deals with it. So what we see in this case, in verse 22, he says, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus. So what we find here, and I want you to write this down, it's a spiritual problem with a physical manifestation. The problem is spiritual, but it manifests as something physical. And so the idea here is that something is going on in the unseen realm, yet it's having an effect in the material or the physical realm. So because this is a spiritual problem, medication is just not going to help. So there's, there's nothing that medicine can do for this. We're going to see this several times in the New Testament. One time, there is a lady who is bent over, and she's been bent over for a number of years. And Jesus says it's the work of Satan that did this. And so, uh, again, it was a physical, it was a spiritual problem with a physical manifestation. So, in this case, uh, Jesus attributes what we would see as a medical problem to a a spiritual a spiritual source. So, there's a few thoughts that I want to uh, put out just before we move through. But uh, this event takes place before the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus has not gone to the cross yet, he's not died, and he's not been raised from the dead. In the Gospels, there are times when somebody has a situation that's attributed to the demonic and yet it manifests in the physical. After the Gospels, after the resurrection of Jesus, there is never uh, again a mention where a believer has a Um, a physical condition, it's never again attributed to a spiritual source. Uh, That doesn't mean that that doesn't take place. It's just that after Jesus is raised from the dead and uh, the epistles, illness is never attributed to a spiritual source. And so we'll see, for instance, there on your outline, Paul would say, Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. And, uh, and everybody agrees that it's not because this was a spiritual source, it was just because, because you know, he was sick. Now that does, again, that doesn't mean that it can't have a spiritual source, it's just that it's never mentioned. So there's two extremes that I think that we need to avoid. First extreme, and some, sometimes in church world we get over here on, on this end and we say every time somebody is sick it's all from Satan. And uh, we need to avoid that. The truth is, you and I live in a fallen world. Our bodies are falling apart, uh, at least mine is. And uh, so, you know, and we don't know anybody who's 150 years old. So uh, it's just, just sowing and reaping and, and just that. Uh, another extreme would be to say that it's never spiritual in nature. And so we want to avoid that extreme also. But something that we see. So the crowds in this case, they begin to ask if Jesus could be the one that they've been waiting for. So in verse 23 they say all the crowds were amazed and were saying this man cannot be the son of David, can he? And uh, so uh, again they're, they're seeing this miracle and they're drawing the conclusion that this could be the Messiah. Now it's at this point where the crowds begin saying "Is this? could this be the one we've been waiting for that the Pharisees In order to stop the crowds from believing, they say in verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard this, that is, that the crowds are asking, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Some of your Bibles will say Beelzebub. So, um, how many of your Bibles say Beelzebub? Okay, and how many of your Bibles say Beelzebub? Okay. Uh, Just very quickly, we've talked about this. I won't spend much time on it, but the word is actually Beelzebub, and uh, that was a Philistine god, and it was uh, considered to be the picture of Satan. Jewish people don't take the names of other gods on their lips, because it says in the Ten Commandments, you don't take the names of other gods on your lips. So when they referred to this one Beelzebub, they wouldn't say Beelzebub. They would say Beelzebul, Uh, there in your outline, Beelzebub means Lord of the house, whereas Beelzebul means the Lord of Dung. So uh, the idea is that would be kind of an insult to that. So what they are saying at this point is they are saying that the work that Jesus is doing, they are attributing that to Satan. And so this begins the part that we need to talk about. So Jesus then responds to the Pharisees' accusation that he is doing this work by, by the power of Satan. So in verse 25 it says, and knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them. And I'll come back to that. Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. So it says, Jesus said to them. Jesus here is speaking specifically to the Pharisees who are accusing Jesus of doing works by Satan. So far so good? So here's the question. Pharisees, speaking to them, um, are they uh, the good guys in the Bible or the bad guys? Okay. So would they be believers or would they be unbelievers? Unbelievers. Okay, so I want you to write this down, and this is key for understanding this chapter. If you don't get this point, the rest of the chapter will make no sense. Write this down. Here Jesus is speaking to unbelievers. Unbelievers. He's speaking to the Pharisees. If you are a believer here today, I'm assuming that you are, there are some things that we can look at and we can learn. However, we have to Uh, remind ourselves that here Jesus is speaking to a group of unbelievers. So everything that Jesus is speaking about here is applied to the unbeliever, the, the Pharisees who are rejecting him. Jesus speaks very differently to different groups of people. So when he's speaking to apostles and disciples, he'll say things like, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and you know, I give it to you, and we're familiar with those verses. But he never says that to the crowd. To the crowd he says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And, and, and so they're coming to Jesus. But to the Pharisees, the unbelievers, he speaks yet another way. We're going to find that today. But you have to keep in mind that he is speaking to the Pharisees who are unbelievers. They have rejected him. They are in the process of rejecting. They will continue to reject. And so everything has to be read through that filter. So a couple of times we're going to come to uh, some places that tend to trip up believers and I'm going to give you a quiz. I'm going to say, is he speaking to believers or unbelievers? And then that's where you'll say unbelievers. Okay. So I'm giving I'm giving you the answer. So uh, don't go, gee, I don't know. He's speaking to unbelievers. So far so good? Okay. So again, there's some things that we can learn, but he's speaking to unbelievers. Verse twenty five, he says, And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Uh, Verse 27, so if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. They'll be your your judges. So here Jesus begins with the absurdity after all the people that he's healed, all the demons that he's cast out, uh, the absurdity of saying that it's Satan because why would Satan be going around kicking kicking out Satan? Now when Luke tells the same story, I've put this on your outline, he adds a little detail. He says, if I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by, and I've underlined the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When it says the finger of God, it's more like a, like a flicking, like when you're, you're sitting down and an ant crawls on you and you just kind of flick it out. It, it doesn't take a lot of effort. This is very different than the way exorcisms were performed way back in that first century by some of the Jewish exorcists. So if, if you were to read a commentary on this, like the NIV Life Application Commentary, it would say in the ancient world exorcists used a a variety of incantations and spells, potions and herbs, uh, rings and earrings as magical things in an attempt to manipulate the spiritual world. But Jesus' form of exorcism has been far different. He commands the demon by his own authority and they immediately submit. So what you find is that When Jesus performs an exorcism, when his disciples perform an exorcism, they they don't use um, anything material. They don't use relics. They don't use potions. They don't use oils. They just say, In the name of Jesus, I command you to come out. And it's based upon that authority. So always keep that in mind when you see uh, somebody performing an exorcism uh, of some sort. And um, not to give a a big teaching on exorcism today, but. um, there you have it. So here the Pharisees do not deny that a miracle is taking place. They're just denying the source of the miracle. So here Jesus then gives a principle, a spiritual principle, that, that has two sides. One it has the side of how Jesus is dealing with Satan, but also you can look at this, and this is just part of it. You can say we can learn from it, but keep in mind he's speaking to unbelievers. Uh, this is also how Satan wants to deal with us. So we'll uh, look at that. Verse uh, 28 and 29 he says, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house? Now I've underlined the word house. And carry off his property. And uh, some of your Bibles will say possession, some will say property, underline that. Unless he first binds, and I've underlined that, the strong man. And then he will plunder his house. In in context here, what Jesus is saying is that you have the strong man, and that would be Satan. And uh, Jesus is the stronger man. He shows up. He binds Satan, and he goes in. He's taking the stuff that Satan has had. And so that's the interpretation. That's what Jesus is talking about. But. Um, There is another side of this that Bible scholars look at and they say that's very interesting, uh, some of the wording that Jesus uses because it appears also to have two sides. Uh, Jesus goes in and binds, but it's also the same thing that Satan wants to do to the believer if he can. So a couple of things, and I I think uh, this is especially important for those of us who are dads, or, or if you're a uh, Mom, it's certainly important for you too, but I want to just take a minute and just speak to the dads real quick, uh, specifically. But as believers, you and I are called to be strong spiritually. We're going to see in a few moments that uh, a casual walk with the Lord uh, accomplishes nothing. You, know, you, you just leave yourself wide open. So here uh, in, this, in this passage, in Matthew's passage, in verse 29 When he says, how how can anyone enter a strong man's house? Now I'm going to suggest, spiritually speaking, the other side of this would be that you and I as uh, strong believers are to be the strong men of our house. And uh, so the principle goes like this, enter the strong man's house. And it's interesting there, I put the word for house there in your outline from the Greek. Oikia means a residence and abode but I want you to underline by implication a family. Does everybody see that? And he says, uh, how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property? Now the word property, and uh, how many of your Bibles will say possessions? Okay, I would say probably a better way to say this would be uh, precious possessions because of what the word means. And here's what that word means. Property or possessions I I won't try to pronounce that word, Skuios, A vessel, specifically a Wife as contributing to the usefulness of the husband goods sale stuff vessel. Uh, the idea is these possessions are things that you would hold as very precious, for instance, a wife. And uh, I can tell you that in my family right now, I have 13 precious possessions in my house, my wife and, and the 12 kids, and no, you know th- this, that's precious to us, so that's what that's talking about. He says, How can anyone enter the strong man's house, we might say his family, and carry off his property, his precious possessions, unless he first binds? And uh, there you have that word bind on your outline, a primary verb to bind in a various applications. Uh, literally, figuratively, bind, be in bonds, to, to knit, to tie, to wind. I would say to bind us up in a way that makes us spiritually ineffective spiritually speaking the demonic can't get into the the household and carry off the precious possessions when the strong man is there prepared not bound up so satan's goal is going to be to get the strong man of the house bound up so that he can have the access to come walking on in now when luke tells the story he, he tells it a little bit different. He says, there in your outline, when a strong man, fully armed, you ever read somewhere in the New Testament where it says that you and I as believers need to put on the armor of God? So strong, prepared, recognizing that we're in a spiritual battle, fully armed, guards his own house. Same word, means family. His possessions, again, same word, those precious possessions, are undisturbed undisturbed but when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and this is the word that always causes me concern and distributes his plunder Uh, the idea is to pass around what it is that he's taken and so On the one side, Jesus is speaking to unbelievers. That's the principle he comes in. He binds. On the other hand, it's also the plan that Satan has, uh, which he would like to do in our life. He would love nothing more than to get us bound up in such a way spiritually that he can walk in, take our precious goods, and then distribute them. So, so, the, the picture would be more like the man is bound up in some sin that keeps him from being strong spiritually in such a way that the the demonic entity, satanic force, can come in and carry off. So he can provide materially, but he can't help his wife with, with her depression. He can provide materially, but he, he can't help his son stay away from the things that will destroy his life. He can provide materially, but he can't keep his daughter from uh, going out and becoming, you know, passed around, you, you might say. And so the the other side of that talks or would allude to you and I being strong spiritually. So There's just, just a little bit, further on that. And again, we talk about this in our spiritual warfare series we did last year. So the intent is not to give a spiritual warfare teaching, but if you're struggling with with this or this resonates with you, we do have a series and there is freedom and the Lord would love nothing better than to make you strong spiritually so that in that spiritual realm you can be effective again. So write this down. I'm called to be strong spiritually. It says finally be strong in the Lord and his mighty power put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's scheme. So you and I are in a spiritual battle. Satan has, has tricked many professing believers to believe that we are not really in a spiritual battle. Satan's plan is always to get me bound up in some type of sin, bound up in a way that I'm no longer free, I'm no longer strong, I'm no longer able to protect spiritually. Uh, that's why it says there in your outline, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil prowls around, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So uh, again, this is not to be a teaching on spiritual warfare, but maybe a warning, be strong, don't let things come in, because Satan would love to carry off your precious possessions any way that he can. And he does that by first by getting those of us who are to be the strong in our house spiritually bound up in some way. So there's two sides of that truth. So once again, Jesus is, we'll go back to the story. Did you at least find that interesting? Okay, three of you did, so that's good. So remember the the primary focus here, Jesus is speaking to non-believers. So he says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Again, uh, there's no call to casualness as it relates to Jesus. So he's either who he claims to be or he's not. If he is, these people need to believe, but, but they are rejecting. Verse 31, he says, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. But blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. So let me ask you a question so far. Is Jesus speaking to believers or unbelievers? Unbelievers. So you have to keep that in mind as you you read that. If you're you're a believer here, he's not speaking to you. He's speaking to the Pharisees who has rejected them. He's talking about a truth uh, that would relate to them. So what does Jesus say to believers? Um, there on your outline, John three eighteen Is that the next thing on your outline or is it? Is, okay, good. So to the believers, here's what Jesus would say. He who believes in him is not judged. Uh, he who does not believe in him has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the Holy Begotten Son of God. These do not believe. They have already been judged you believe. You are not judged. So keep that in mind as we go. Then we come to this word blasphemy. Uh, Most of us don't really know what it means other than it sounds like a really cool word to say, doesn't it? You know, blasphemy. It sounds good in movies. But the word blasphemy just means, there in your outline, uh, actually the Greek word is blasphemia. It means vilification, Uh, especially against God, it means evil speaking, underline that, and railing. Evil speaking and railing. So it's to speak against somebody. Uh, Blasphemy from Merriam-Webster's is uh, defined like this. The act of insulting or showing contempt or lack of reverence for God. So it's to speak against. Uh, Sometimes it appears to be much more than uh, when it's Culturally defined, but it's just to speak against. They have been blaspheming the Holy Spirit by taking when Jesus does a miracle, they attribute that to the power of Satan. That's speaking against what it is that God is doing. So, do you have John fifteen twenty six on on your outline? Okay, all right. So, uh, so they are speaking of that. But here's what, and it explained it like this. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. So the Holy Spirit, whom they're blaspheming against, comes to point us to Jesus. The reason that you became a believer is because at some point the Holy Spirit was speaking to you saying, you need Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And you listened to that. You listened to that. Now, when someone keeps resisting the Holy Spirit speaking to them in the face of evidence, in the face of whatever it is, as they keep resisting, uh, that puts them against. And that is what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. How is it that they cannot be forgiven? Well, if somebody resists, 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 resist, and then they die, their eternity is set. They have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. What we see in Scripture is that there are some cases where somebody has resisted, resisted, resisted to the place where God has nothing else to say to that person. Uh, you have Jesus before Herod, and Herod heard about the uh, the miracles. He had John the Baptist. John the Baptist told him, and so then Herod begins to speak to Jesus, and all it says is Jesus answered him, not a word. God had no longer anything to say to Herod. Sometimes somebody can resist to the point where God says, okay, we're done. I don't think it's for you and I to ever determine that in somebody's, somebody's life that's something that God does. But when you die and you've resisted, that can never be forgiven because you never accept it. So if you were to read a commentary on this it would say something like this. When the testimony of Jesus is fully and finally rejected one has truly blasphemed the Holy Spirit and essentially called him a liar in respect to his testimony about Jesus. To reject Jesus from a distance with little information is bad but to reject the testimony of the Holy Spirit about Jesus is fatal. So they've seen, they've seen the miracles, they knew the scriptures, the Holy Spirit was speaking to them, they rejected, rejected, rejected. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So there on your outline, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, when a person does not receive the work of the Holy Spirit, they cannot come to Jesus and therefore cannot receive forgiveness. They've rejected the work of the Spirit. That is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So here, Jesus is speaking to non-believers who have rejected. He is not speaking to you as a believer. And and so when they die, they can't be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. Now, every commentary will also say this. um, If you are even remotely concerned that you've committed that sin, you have not committed it. Because... uh, God is not speaking anymore by his spirit to those uh, they've gone too far, is the idea. And again, I, I think for most people that takes place when we die. Does that make sense or did I just confuse it even more? I confused it even more, didn't I? I did. I did. All right. The idea is that it's the rejection of what the Holy Spirit is saying to the place where you don't receive, you die, you step into eternity, and that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Well, verse 33, he goes on, he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. And then he says, you brood of vipers, uh, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So verse thirty three says, "Make the tree good, or make the tree bad. You'll know it by its by its fruit." So you look at Jesus, and the fruit fruit means the result. The dead are raised, people are healed, the blind see, uh, the man who can't speak he now speaks, and so, you know, that's good fruit. You know, you should say that's good fruit. On the other hand, verse thirty four he says. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. They can't speak what is good because they are evil. You being evil. That's their condition. So write this down. Their words revealed their heart. In verse 14 we saw they wanted to kill Jesus. Uh, In verse 24 they're saying that what Jesus is doing is all by Satan. Satan. And so Jesus says in verse 34, he says, you brood of vipers. Um, the brood, uh, some of your Bibles will say you generation of vipers. How many of your Bibles say that? Okay, you can, you can, it's either way. But the word brood there means offspring. You're the offspring of vipers. A viper is a poisonous snake. If you were a first century Jewish person, the snake always represented what? Satan. So Jesus has just told them that you are evil, you're literally the offspring of Satan. If you're the offspring of Satan, uh, you're never going to come to, to him as the idea. It's not going to change. Verse 35, he says, the good man brings out of his good treasure what is good and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you, every careless word that people speak they shall give an accounting for in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So so you will hear people say that on judgment day you are going to stand before God and you are going to give an account for every word that has come out of your mouth. Has anybody ever heard this? Make you a little nervous? So <laughs> so hopefully they don't play the whole movie right so so i want to ask you a question and I, I want you to write down the answer okay is jesus speaking to believers or unbelievers here unbelievers that's where you write down unbelievers and you say thank you jesus thank you jesus so write that down so um, their words against him have revealed their heart. Their words could have justified them. They could have said, We believe. But instead, their words were against him. They've attributed what it is that he's done to the power of Satan. And so um, on that day, their words will be used against them for judgment. For the believer, now he's speaking to unbelievers. He says, You'll give an account to every word. For the believer it's very different. Believers are never judged for the bad things that we've done. As a matter of fact this is what he would say to the believer there in your outline. That God was reconciling reconciling the world to himself in Christ. And then I want you to underline not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us this ministry of reconciliation. If you're a believer when you die, your judgment is for reward. For the unbeliever, their judgment is for punishment. Your sins are not being held against you. They're not going to be brought up at a later date. Those have all been paid for and done with. And uh, even the words that we've said. Does that make you feel good? Yeah. Good. All right, verse 38. But I tell you, did somebody just go over <laughs> here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 All right. So uh, yes, we've all been there. Verse 38. Now, some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now they've just seen a sign. They've just seen a miracle, but for them, it's never enough. Uh, They they don't want to come to Jesus and they're probably looking for a way to, to trap him. Verse 39. He says, he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And I've underlined that. Yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, my translation says belly of the fish, some of your translations say belly of the whale, the word is just large fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Verse 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Very quickly, some people in our world, even Christians, question Jonah and the fish story. And uh, So so when you hear that, just come back to Jesus here apparently believes in Jonah and, and the fish. So if Jesus believes it, he's God. He probably saw the whole thing happen. So, if Jesus believed it, you can believe it too. How many of you believe it? Good, 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 good. I do too. Um, so, so some some people question that. Now, when Jesus is raised from the dead, they still won't believe. He says, "So even if I like Jonah was three days and, and the and the fish comes out and uh, preaches a, a message of repentance and they repent." Now. What we forget is that when Jonah spends three days in the fish, the acids and all that's in the fish would have bleached Jonah completely white and uh, would have eaten off all of the hair on his entire body. And so when Jonah is vomited up from the fish, he's completely bleached out, completely bald. And so in essence, Jonah becomes the sign and so when he yells, repent, everybody looks on and says, something's up. We probably need to repent. So it is literally what takes place. So Jonah is the sign. He is the sign. And they repent. What, part of what Jesus is saying is that they're asking for a sign. And just as Jonah was the sign, Jesus is the sign. The difference is Jonah gives one sermon The entire nation repents. Jesus does healings and miracles and teaches, and they don't repent. They don't repent. Then it goes on, and he says in verse 42, he says, The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. She traveled far to get this kind of wisdom, but God traveled far to give it, and they rejected it. She loved hearing this wisdom. They don't want to hear the wisdom, so they will be judges against. And then Jesus says in verse 43, he says, now when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house From which I came, and when it comes, he will find it unoccupied, swept, put in order. Then it goes and takes along with him seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Now, the part that you need to underline is that is the way it will also be with this evil generation. There is a whole teaching here on how the demonic operates. And we cover that when we talk about spiritual warfare. Here, Jesus' purpose is not to give a teaching on how the demonic operates. He closes out the illustration by saying, this is how it will be with that generation. The idea is that somebody had something removed and it's a very good time for them. But they don't do something. They don't fill themselves up with the things of God. So because they don't do that, later on, something worse comes in. And so the end result is much worse than where they began in the first place. Does that make sense? Jesus says, this is how it's going to be with this generation. The idea is he's come. When he came, it was a good thing, but they didn't do something with it. So when he leaves some very bad things, much worse are going to come in. And that very sadly, when you look at what's taken place from that generation on, much worse took place uh, amongst the, the, the Jewish people, and their condition became very quickly much worse than it was just before Jesus showed up. And so there's great consequences for rejecting. God has a great plan for the Jewish people, so not to be anti-Semitic. But that's the point that he's making there as he closes that, as he talks about that generation. The rest of the chapter I'm going to pick up when we come to the end of chapter 13. Hopefully I didn't confuse you too much. uh, But if you're a believer here today, uh, never get tripped up in thinking that when Jesus is speaking to unbelievers, there are things that we can learn but he's not talking to you your eternity is secure, it's sealed, and uh, if you're here today and you've never come to that place where you've invited Jesus in, he says that he's standing literally at the door of your heart and he's knocking. And if you're hearing that, it's because the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and you don't want to resist what the Holy Spirit is doing because there does come a day, whether it's in this life or at the end of our life, where our eternity is set and you don't want to be in that place. So as I close today, if that's you, you have the opportunity to invite Jesus in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we wrap this up today, uh, so much that we've covered, but um, Lord, we don't want to uh, find any of us here in that place where, like the Pharisees, we were resisting you to the place Where we never really received you, you never came in and changed us. We were never born again. Your Spirit never entered into us. And uh, as we see with them, you lay it out pretty clear that their fate has been set. And Lord, we pray that that for all of us we find ourselves in that place, the place of the believer. And so, Lord, for even that one that might be here today who hasn't come to that place. We simply look to you and say, Jesus, come into my life. Come into my heart. Come into my being. Save me. Wash me clean from my sins and and teach me and grow me and help me to be everything you want me to be. Change my life according to your plan and use me. And as you've promised, you stand at the door and knock. And if we open up our hearts to you, you come in. Father, I pray that you keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.